moving forward in Exodus this morning, we'll be reading chapter 5, verse 22, to chapter 6, verse 9. This is God's response to the people when they complain about how their slavery has gotten harsher, their slavery has gotten more difficult, and they ask the Lord, why have you done this to us? Why have things gotten worse for us? And the Lord gives his answer to us in chapter 6, and his answer What it really comes down to, as we'll see in just a moment, as Matt reads for us, is that he wants his people to know him. He wants to reveal himself as the one who saves them, as the one who rescues them. And so that's what we'll see as we read Exodus. After that, I want to see this theme of knowing God, of truly knowing him personally. I want to see this theme uh, come through in the rest of Scripture. And so after we read in Exodus, then Jen will come forward for us And read for us in Jeremiah 31, which tells us of the days that we are living in now where we can all know the Lord. Then Claire will come and read for us from John 17, verses 1 to 3, which is again a reminder to us of how the Lord makes himself personally known to us. And then lastly, Sam will come and read for us from 1 Peter 2, 9, reminding us of the intimacy of the relationship that we now have with the Lord. And so let's Open our ears, open our hearts now to the reading of God's word. Uh, Matt, if you want to come forward and begin our readings. Then Moses turned to the Yahweh and said, O Yahweh, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Yahweh said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name the Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the ongoing, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Yahweh, your God." who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for your possession. I am the Yahweh. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Jeremiah 31, 33, and 34. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. 
and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. John 17, verses 1 through 3. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, only true, the only true God, and Jesus, whom you have sent it. 1 Peter 2.9 <clears throat> But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Well, again, as we come to this text in Exodus, we see what has prompted this text, what has prompted this response from the Lord, is the complaint of God's people. The people at this point have been enslaved for over a hundred years. They have had their male infants cast into the Nile. And just more recently, they have been promised deliverance from God. God met Moses in the burning bush, told Moses that you're going to go back to Egypt and you're going to deliver my people, gave Moses signs to perform. Moses was obedient to God. He went back to Egypt. He spoke to the elders of Israel. He said, the Lord has sent me. His name is Yahweh. And I am going to deliver you out from slavery. And initially, the people were very enthusiastic, right? They praised God. The end of chapter 4 says that they bowed their heads and they worshiped. But then, what happened next? Well, not what they expected. Their slavery, instead of being gone, instead of them escaping, it became worse. Instead, Pharaoh said, you will have to make the same number of bricks that you have always had to make, but now I'm not going to give you straw anymore. You'll have to go and collect that yourselves. And if you don't meet the quota that I give you, then you're going to be beaten and you're going to be in worse trouble than you were before. And so understandably, the people, when they receive this news, they groan, they complain, say, why have things gotten worse? And so at the end of chapter 5, they speak to Moses and they tell Moses, Yahweh, look on you, Moses, and judge, because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. So this is the people's attitude right now, right? Like, we don't believe God's going to deliver us. Things have gotten worse. And so what does Moses do? Well, Moses, I believe, actually does the right thing. At the beginning of verse 22 of chapter 5, it says that Moses turned to Yahweh. Now, that is always the right thing to do, is it not? When Moses finds himself accused by the people of Israel, when he finds that what he has done has not come about as he expected. He's made things worse. It would be easy to understand how in this moment, Moses would actually run away from God, right? How he would say, well, Lord, I did what you said, and look, it didn't work. So I'm moving on. Plan B, right? I'm going back to Midian, or whatever it is that he might be thinking. But that's not what Moses does. Again, verse 22 says, Moses turned to Yahweh. 
So we praise God that Moses did that, that he turned to Yahweh. And when he turned to the Lord, he says this very short prayer that we see recorded in verses 22 and 23. And I think this is a great model of prayer for us when we ourselves turn to the Lord. What he does is he simply unburdens his heart to the Lord. He is honest with the Lord. He says, oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Okay, so do you hear Moses' honesty there? He's not trying to sugarcoat things. He's not trying to just, you know, make it sound in some way like the Lord's promise really has come true, even though he can't see how it's come true or anything like that. No, the Lord said he would deliver the people, and Moses believed the Lord that he would deliver the people, and the Lord hasn't done it. And so what does he do? He goes to the Lord and he tells him so. He says, Lord, this is what you promised. This has not happened. What's going on? Right? So again, this is a good model for us. We shouldn't always just try to spiritualize the Lord's promises or just make ourselves believe that the Lord is good, even when you don't really feel like he's good. No, we should go to the Lord and say, Lord, you've promised to be good to us. I don't understand why it doesn't feel good right now. Help me. Right? That's, that's what genuine prayer is, is pouring out your heart to the Lord. And so Moses has gone to the Lord, poured out his heart, says, why have you done this, God? And the Lord, Yahweh, in his graciousness, replies to Moses. And how does he reply? He says, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. In other words, he tells Moses that, no, I've not forgotten my promises. No, this is not a setback for me. This is not something unplanned. He says, no, now is the time when I plan. Now is when I will deliver the people. I will fulfill my promise. As we looked at last week, we saw that what the Lord wanted to do is raise the stakes, right? He wanted the people of Israel to feel their true need of God to feel their brokenness, their helplessness, so that God could be all in all. So now that God has done that, now that he has humbled his people, now that they have been broken, now that Moses has cried out to God saying, Lord, we really are helpless. God says, now is the time when you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. But God doesn't leave it there. He continues to speak to Moses. He continues to expand on this answer to give Moses the even deeper reason, you could say, why now is the time that he will deliver his people from Pharaoh. And that's what we find in verses 2 through 9. It's one of the most remarkable explanations of God's name, of who God is in all of Scripture. Now, as I said at the very beginning before we read, the ultimate answer that God is giving here as to why now is the time, as to what he wants to accomplish in the deliverance of his people, is he wants to make himself known. He wants the people to know that he is Yahweh. He wants the people to know him. We see that in verse 3, and we see that again in verse 7. So look at verse 3 of chapter 6. It says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God, as God Almighty, but by my name, Yahweh, which, by the way, again, this is why we're using the name Yahweh. If the translation says, by my name, the Lord, 
It just doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? Because the Lord is not his name, right? His name is Yahweh. So by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. Okay, so he's saying before they did not know me in the way I want them to know me, but now I'm going to make you know me the way I want you to know me. I didn't make myself known, but now I will make myself known. And that's what we see reiterated in verse 7 of chapter 6. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God. This is what God wants to accomplish in his redemption of his people. This is why he made them suffer this setback, this harsher slavery, because he wants them to know that he truly is the Lord, that he truly is Yahweh. He wants to reveal who he is. Now, what does this tell us about what it means to know the Lord? Well, I'd say most clearly what this tells us about what it means to know the Lord is that knowing the Lord is something that must go beyond just our mental understanding, right? It's something that must go beyond just our cognitive appraisal or, or what we can write down about God, right? I mean, if the, if the Lord wanted to be known by his people in that way, as if they would just know a lot of things about him, well, he didn't need to make them suffer. He didn't need to make it any worse for them. Indeed, he wouldn't have to deliver them from slavery at all, right? He could just send them a lecturer, right? Send them a teacher who could tell them all they need to know about how good God is and to explain to them what they need to understand. But clearly, that is not what God means by know me. He doesn't just want them to have an intellectual understanding, a head knowledge of who God is. I mean, consider, we all know what it means to know a person, right? I mean, like, I, I would never stand up here and say, oh, I know, you know, Winston Churchill or something like that. Like, I can't say that I know him. I never met him. I, I know a lot about him. I've read about him. So I, I know who he is and things like that. But I don't know Winston Churchill, For any of us, if we want to say that we know someone, it means that we have some kind of personal experience of them, right? We we know what they're like. We've spoken with them. We've seen them face to face. This is what we mean when we say we know someone. We don't say we know someone if we've never met them and if we've only read about them in a book, if they're only kind of an idea to us. To know someone is to have a sense of who they are as a person, to have encountered them, to interact with them. You talk with them. That's what it means to know somebody, okay? And so often when we come to God, just because we know that God is not a a flesh and blood person like you and I, we kind of excuse ourselves from truly knowing the Lord the way that we should, and we think that, oh, if I just have facts about him, if I just have an idea about him, that's all the Lord expects of me. That's what the Lord wants. He just wants me to learn some theology, right? To read the right books, Again, that is not what the Lord calls us to do. That is not how he wants us to know him. He wants us to know him personally, the way that we know other people. He wants us to have an encounter with him. Again, this is just a clear message of the text that is before us. When we come to verse 3, God says, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them, right? He's not saying I didn't like teach them about me. 
He's saying, I didn't reveal my action to them. I didn't make them experience me in the same way that I'm going to make you experience me. This is the significance of verse 1 when he says, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh, right? Not just I'm going to tell you about it, but you will see with your own eyes what I will do to Pharaoh. This is how you're going to come to know me. A little bit later on in chapter 6, verse 6, he says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Now, why does the Lord preface that explanation of what he's going to do, that delivering them and all those things, with this statement, I am Yahweh. Because he's trying to teach them what his name means, what it means to know his name. What it means to know God's name is, again, not to simply know about him, but to know Yahweh, to know that he is Yahweh, means that you have been brought out from under the burden of the Egyptians, you've been delivered from slavery to them, And that you've been redeemed with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. That's what verse 6 is saying. When you experience that deliverance, when you've seen that with your own eyes, that's when you know that I am Yahweh. And then he goes on even in verses 7 and 8. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. Do you hear the intimacy of the relationship that God is describing there? Again, this is not just a God who has a head knowledge of a people and a people who have some kind of head knowledge of God. No, this is God and people being united as if in marriage. You will be mine and I will be yours forever and ever. It's the sort of knowledge that God is proclaiming here. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God and you shall know that I am Yahweh your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. And then going on in verse 8, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. Again, he closes with those words, right? He's emphasizing this is who I am. This is what it means to know me. The truth of who God is is not simply found in books or in debate. The truth of who God is is found in his actions in history, in the redemption that he offers. And it's only as we experience that redemption that he offers that we come to know who he is. We come to know him. The person who's only read about God, the person who only thinks true things about God has not truly come to know the Lord. James tells us that the devils believe in God. The devils know the truth about God even better than we know the truth about God. But they tremble because they don't truly know him. They just know the facts about him, and they hate the facts about him. That's why they're devils. But we have the opportunity to know the Lord, to be intimate with him, to belong to him, and for him to be our God. It is an encounter with the Lord. Jonathan Edwards says that there is an infinite difference between being told that honey is sweet and actually tasting of the sweetness of honey. That is a sort of difference that God is talking about in this passage. This is why the people had to suffer more greatly before they could experience the deliverance that God offered because he didn't just want to tell them about how powerful he was, tell them about how good he was, how faithful he was. No, he wanted them to taste it. 
wanted them to know that he is the Lord. Beloved, the Lord wants the same thing for each of you this morning. He doesn't just want you to kind of acknowledge true things about him, to say that the Lord has done something for you in the past, to say that the Lord is with you, but not to have this powerful experience of who God is, of how good he is to you, of how sweet he is. The Lord wants us to experience that. And if he wants us to experience that, that means he must take us through lows so that we can get to highs. He must take us through the valley of the shadow of death so that we can truly feel what it is to know life. He must take us through every kind of sorrow so that we can know fullness of joy. This is how we come to know the Lord and not merely think right things about him. It's as we go through trials and suffering that the Lord truly reveals to us who he is. And so how is it that we today can come to encounter God in this way, can come to know God in this way? Well, first of all, just to reiterate what I've just said, it is not something that can simply be done through reading or through teaching. It is an experience. Now, I do believe that the Lord can work, the Lord can move through preaching, through what I'm doing right now. God can send forth his spirit as I'm speaking, and he can make himself known to you by his spirit as you sit there right now. That is a possibility, and I pray every week that that's what God would do through the preaching of his word, that you would have an encounter with the living God, with the Holy Spirit, as his word goes forth. But the Lord can also make himself known to you throughout every experience of your life. If you will turn to the Lord as Moses turned to the Lord with every setback you face, with every sorrow you feel, as you turn to the Lord in the midst of your difficulties and you see the Lord at work, you see him deliver you from troubles, you see him comfort you in the midst of sorrow, you see him provide for you in every way, in that way you come to encounter the Lord, you come to know him not just as someone who was true for someone else or who did something at some point in the past, but as someone who is with you, who loves you, who gave himself for you, and you come to truly know the Lord. So I say that to say that, yes, attend to my words right now, but also understand that if you truly want to know the Lord, it will not simply happen by coming on Sunday morning. It will only happen as you walk with the Lord through all of life. As you walk with the Lord through all of life, as you take risks for the Lord in all of life, then the Lord will appear and will show himself as the powerful God, as the living God that he truly is. This is why we delight to take risks for the Lord. Because when we take a risk for the Lord and the Lord comes through, now we have known the Lord in a way that we did not know him before. And so I exhort you all to have this aim in your life to know the Lord. And again, not just to know him, with your head, but to know him by experience. So what more can I say this morning in directing you to know the Lord in this way? Well, I want to follow the outline of this passage itself. And the outline of this passage itself, when the Lord is talking about making himself known, what the Lord says in this passage is that he essentially has made himself known in two phases or in two stages, right? We see in verse 3, He says, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. Now, the the Hebrew underneath that word, God Almighty, is El Shaddai. And 
The, the definition of Shaddai is actually quite debated. It's not clear what Shaddai means. God Almighty is kind of a, it's a good guess. But I think the best way to grasp what it means that God is El Shaddai is to look at where else in Scripture, up to this point especially, God has revealed himself as El Shaddai. And I think that when we look at how else God has revealed himself as El Shaddai, maybe the better definition or the better understanding we see for God being El Shaddai is that he is the faithfully sufficient God. He is the faithfully sufficient God. There's five other occasions before this where God has revealed himself as El Shaddai. The first time when God revealed himself as El Shaddai is when Abraham was childless. And God comes to him and he promises Abraham that he will be the father of many nations. And when God gives that promise to Abraham, he gives that promise by saying, I am El Shaddai. I will do it. And so Abraham had this confidence, had this call to faith in God by God telling Abraham that he was El Shaddai, that El Shaddai is the one who would give Abraham a child even though Abraham was childless. The next time we see God reveal himself as El Shaddai is when Jacob sent his sons to Joseph to get grain during the midst of famine. And up to that point, Joseph was just kind of known as this capricious ruler, right? He, he really hated his brothers initially in the Joseph story. And so when Jacob sent his sons back, he thought he was sending them to their deaths, right? He thought he was sending them to harm way, harm's way. He didn't know if his sons would ever return, but he knew that they were hungry, they needed food. And so he sent his sons to Egypt. And when he sent his sons to Egypt, he said, may El Shaddai be with you. So may he be faithfully sufficient, right? May he protect you. May he not let you fall into harm. We also see Jacob say this word again when he himself has to go down to Egypt. And he doesn't want to go down to Egypt because he said, God promised to give me this land. But then God appears to Jacob and he says, I am El Shaddai. I will bring you back to this land so you can go down to Egypt. And so again, that was God's promise to Jacob that he would be faithfully sufficient for him. He would be with him. And then lastly, we see Joseph call God El Shaddai when he is delivered through slavery and through imprisonment to be on the throne of Egypt. And so in all these things, I believe that what God is showing us of himself, who God is showing us to be, is he's showing us that he is the faithfully sufficient one. I think this is what we see reiterated in the passage before us too. Right after God says, I made myself known to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai. In verse 4, he says, I established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. And so the name El Shaddai is connected then with this idea that I am in covenant with this people. And what does it mean that God is in covenant with us? Well, it means he has pledged himself to us. He has promised himself to us. He will not abandon us. That again, no matter what it is we may be going through, no matter how dark life may seem, if God is in covenant with us, if he has promised himself to us, then that means he will not leave us. He is not a God who changes. He is not a God who feels one way one day and feels a different way the next day. No. 
He is the faithful husband. He is the one who will never abandon us. And this is how he revealed himself to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. He said, I am El Shaddai. I will be there for you. I will give you what you need. And so that is how they came to know the Lord in this way. So my first exhortation to you is if you truly want to come to know the Lord, then let me just ask you, where have you relied upon the Lord in the midst of your own weakness, in the midst of your own fear? Where have you experienced the Lord sustaining you through that? Now, of course, I don't wish a dark night of the soul on anyone. I don't wish suffering on anyone, pain on anyone. But what I do wish on everyone is that in those moments of darkness, in those moments of doubt, that you would truly encounter the Lord. That you would know the Lord more deeply as your comforter, as the one who is sufficient than you have ever known him before. I've used the example of Richard Wormbrand before. He was imprisoned for many years in communist Romania because he was faithful to the Lord Jesus as a pastor. And when he was finally let out of prison, he did not look back on those years of torture and imprisonment as something that he hated, as something that he wished he had never happened. No, Richard Wormbrand said, I bless you, prison, because in those walls I came to meet my God. You see, Richard Wormbrand knew that it was through suffering that he experienced the faithfulness of God. And beloved, all of us should desire to know God in the same way, should we not? So that when suffering comes, when trials come, we don't curse God. We don't say, God, why have you abandoned me? Why do you hate me? No, we turn to the Lord and we say, Lord, I am suffering right now, but I know you can comfort me. I know you can meet me even here. And beloved, the Lord will be faithful. He will be sufficient. He will be El Shaddai to you. And so you can encounter God firstly. You can come to know God firstly by doing just that. By surrendering to God, by coming to him in weakness and in fear and trusting that he will see you through. You don't just need to bury your weakness. You don't need to hide your insufficiency. You need to confess it to the Lord and let him meet you. So that was the first stage of the Lord revealing who he is in this passage. But then the second phase, the Lord says again in verse 3 that I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. And so that is what he wants to do now. This is how he wants to further make himself known. And so again, he goes on in verse 5 to say more about this name Yahweh. What does it mean that he's making himself known now as Yahweh? I have heard the groaning of this people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. So speaking back first that he is El Shaddai. But now, what is he doing? Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh. I will bring you out from under the people, uh, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God, who's brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. 
I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. So what is central to these verses? What is central to this message? God is making himself known as the one who rescues, the one who delivers, the one who redeems from slavery to fulfill his promise, redeeming the people to make himself known. You see, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they did all go through difficulty. God made his covenant with each one of them, and he was faithful to them through the covenant. But none of them had experienced what the people of Israel are now experiencing. None of them had experienced abject slavery, where they needed deliverance from their taskmasters, from their slave masters. None of them had been as weak, as helpless as the people of Israel here are. And so again, God did this on purpose. He brought them to this point of helplessness, this point of need on purpose, because he wanted to reveal himself. He wanted them to know him. He wanted them to know him as Yahweh, as the rescuing God, as the delivering God. Now, beloved, this is how God wants us to know him today as well. He wants us to know him as the God who rescues. There may be various ways that the Lord wants to rescue you from various trials or circumstances of your life. But most profoundly, the Lord wants us to know his rescue from the greatest enemy of all. The enemy of sin and death and the devil. Now, the Lord made himself known as Yahweh in delivering the people from the land of Egypt and delivering the people from slavery. And so we know the name Yahweh. We know what it means from seeing those great acts of judgment and from that great work of deliverance. But this even greater work of deliverance, this deliverance from sin and death and the devil, God would come for a third phase, would he not? He would reveal himself by a third name. And that is the name that we know as Jesus the Christ. When God reveals himself as Jesus, he is revealing himself as El Shaddai once again, is he not? Jesus demonstrates for us God's faithfulness, his faithful sufficiency. Indeed, in Jesus, the faithfulness of God is assured by even greater measure than it was ever assured to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. You see, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob maybe had the blood of bulls and goats to assure them of God's faithfulness. But we have the very blood of Jesus Christ that promises that he is in covenant with us. And because we have the blood of Christ, we know that God will never, can never abandon us. And so we know that through Jesus Christ, he will always be faithful to us. And if we ever doubt his faithfulness, we always need only to look to the blood of Jesus Christ and know that God cannot deny himself. He cannot deny his own son. If he has pledged himself to Jesus Christ, and if Jesus Christ has already been the faithful Savior, then God's commitment to us is secure forever. And so God is El Shaddai to us through Jesus Christ. But God is also Yahweh to us through Jesus Christ. 
Again, Jesus worked an even greater redemption than the redemption from slavery to Egypt, did he not? And this is the redemption that when we truly experience it, when we truly feel it, then we have come to know the Lord. The redemption that comes to us through Jesus Christ is again the defeat of sin and death and the devil. You see, beloved, sin holds us all captive as slaves. There is no capacity that any of us have to defeat sin by our own willpower, by our own strength. We are captives to it just as much, if not more so, than the people of Israel were captive to Pharaoh. And the consequences of this captivity are much worse than the consequences of captivity to Pharaoh. What sort of consequences did the people face because of captivity to Pharaoh? Well, we do see at the end of our passage that the people had a broken spirit and harsh slavery. So they did experience heavy and weighty consequences on this earth. Beloved, the consequence of slavery to sin is eternal death. It is hell. It is eternal separation from God, the source of all life and joy and beauty. If we are not freed from this slavery, if we are not freed from slavery to sin, then we will perish. Then we will suffer. Moses himself, the one who led the Exodus, is the one who tells us of this slavery first. He's the author of the book of Genesis. And that is where we see the fall of man from fellowship with God to eating the tree, eating the fruit of the tree that he should not have eaten, so that he is now permanently separated from God, apart from any sort of intervention that God could bring. So Moses himself knew that there was a greater slavery than the slavery to Egypt. It was the slavery to sin. And Jesus, by coming, by taking our sin upon himself, And then by dying upon the cross, what he effectively did is he brought our sin to the grave. He killed our sin so that when we have been united to him, when we come to know him, again, when we feel, when we experience the reality that, Lord, you have taken my sin upon you and I'm now free from the power of sin, when we have that experience, we are now put in a position where we no longer have to sin. We are not slaves to sin any longer. We are not captives to sin anymore. We have been liberated. We have been set free by the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus has shown himself to us as Yahweh, as the one who delivers. And so as we come to know our freedom from sin, our hearts also gradually start to experience freedom from the fear of death. Because as we see that sin itself has lost its hold over us, and as we see that now we are able to walk in righteousness, now we are able to live according to the commands of God, now we no longer need to fear the penalty of death. We no longer need to fear eternal punishment for our sins. And so what once was looming over all our lives, what will happen to me when I die? All of a sudden, it's a joyous moment to come and to cross that river of death and to enter into the presence of the Lord. 
We have been liberated from Egypt and we have come into the promised land, the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. That is where the Lord Jesus is taking us by his death, by his resurrection. And then lastly, Jesus has defeated Satan himself. The name Satan means the accuser. He is the one who would stand in the court of God, telling God everything that we had done wrong, accusing us before God. Satan had his list, and his list was accurate. We have all sinned against a holy God, and Satan knew that when those accusations came before God, that God in his justice would have to condemn us. And so what did Jesus do? Through his death on the cross, through this greater liberation, well, he took that list of sins that Satan held in his hands that the accuser had on us. He took that list, he bore it upon the cross, and in his death, that list, beloved, was torn to shreds so that there is no longer a list. There is no longer any accusation that the accuser that Satan can make in the throne room of God to accuse us before God that we should be condemned, that we should be separated. And so Jesus Christ, through his work, has liberated us from sin, from death, from the devil, so that we no longer have anything to fear. So that as we press into this truth, as we press into the reality that we are loved even though we are sinners, that we are forgiven even though we have done wrong, as we press into this, We come to know Yahweh. We come to know God. And again, not simply know him in our heads, but we receive his love being poured into our hearts. We receive his peace filling us. And there is no more profound knowledge we can have. There is no relationship with another person that we can have that can compare to the nearness of the relationship that we have with God. Beloved, this is the significance of God saying that he will send his spirit after the coming of Jesus Christ. Because when God sends his spirit, and when his spirit fills us, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of the living God. He is the spirit of joy. He is the spirit of peace. He is the spirit of love. And so now when we come to know God, again, it is not merely distant knowledge. It is being filled, it is being flooded with joy, with peace, with love, with everything that God gives, with all that God is, because he is all those things to us and more through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And so, beloved, I urge you this morning to press on to know the Lord. Let the Lord be your rescuer from all your sins, from your fear of death, from any accusation that anyone could bring against you. Let him be your rescuer. Let him be your rescuer from any sorrow or weakness that you feel, any fear that you have. As you let God be your rescuer, you will know him. He will send his spirit to you. And you will experience what it means when Peter says that you will be his people and he will be your God. And so let's go to him now praying to him in that way, knowing that he loves us and that he has heard us. And so let's encounter him even now as we pray. Would you join me? Heavenly Father, 
We thank you that we can call you Father. We thank you that we can come to you. Not as a God who is far off. Who might, if we're lucky, listen to us as we call. But we come to you as the faithful God, as the covenant-keeping God. As the one who has shed the blood of your own son. That we might have an audience with you. And so we thank you, Lord, for hearing our prayers now. Lord, we lament as a people, all of us, that we are not nearer to you. That we are content with a more distant relationship than what it is that we ought to have. And I pray, Lord, that in your mercy, you would allow us to come to know you as you truly are, to know you as El Shaddai, to know you as Yahweh, and most of all, to know you as our Savior, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, teach us this morning. Speak to our hearts. Send us your spirit. Lead us into the knowledge of you. Lord, would you hear us as we pray?